from the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio. This is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yarashevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, President and CEO. We are so glad you could join us. This podcast navigates issues that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences and as we discuss these often avoided topics. Today we are joined by coloratura soprano Louise Toppin. She has performed all over the world at venues such as Carnegie Hall and with orchestras in such diverse places as Sweden, Uruguay, and Japan. She has conquered some of opera's most beloved and challenging roles, including the famous Queen of the Night in Mozart's The Magic Flute, while also championing works by minority composers such as Scott Joplin and William Grant Still. Her career has brought her to Northeast Ohio several times, including a 1998 appearance here at the Canton Symphony Orchestra and this past November up the road with her hometown Akron Symphony. In addition to her performing career, Dr. Toppin is a professor of voice at the University of Michigan and previously served as chair of the Department of Music at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Louise Toppin, welcome to Orchestrating Change. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Oh, it's so nice to see you. I've been lucky enough to uh, meet you in person at uh, the League Conference this past summer, which was so, so lovely. Um, and then I did a little digging after our first emails to find, uh, when you were here in Canton, find um, a, some little record that we have of it. I don't know if we kept great records in 1998, but there is some record. So um, can you just introduce yourself? I know that was a great intro, but just tell us a little bit more about you and growing up and how you became the music star and professional and academic that you are today. Thank you so much. I will do the best that I can to really briefly do that. Um, as, as he mentioned, I was born in Akron, Ohio. My father had gone to Akron, uh, University of Akron, to integrate Akron uh, in the 1950s, and I was born in the next decade while they were there. I didn't stay there for very long. We moved uh, to Virginia, so I grew up mainly in Virginia on the campus of Virginia State University. And an important part of my story is that my father was one of this country's best known historians of African-American history. And so among his contributions are leading the legislation for app to, to make African-American a Black History Month in uh, from a week into a month. Wow. And so that's what I grew up with, and I grew up on a very important musical campus, Willis Patterson, who's uh, who was the dean at the University of Michigan, and their first African-American in the School of Music was my father's colleague. He was also the Black King Balthazar on Minotti's television production of A Mall in the Night Visitor. So when you look at it, not the original okay. uh, production, but the second production that, that CBS put out, that's Willis Patterson. <laughs> Um, and he had challenged them because their first iteration had a white king in blackface. 
And so he actually had the nerve to write and say, with all the black singers that are classically trained, why aren't you using a black king for the black king? And so that caused them uh, to, and I said CBS, but I think it was actually NBC, but it caused them to call him and other black uh, singers in for an audition. They took it seriously, a letter out of the blue, and he ended up winning the part. So he's on the faculty, my father's in the faculty, and then Undine Moore was the other important person who was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize as the first African-American woman in the 1980s for her scenes from the life of a martyr. So if you can imagine, that's just three of the many people on the faculty and how they were thinking. So I grew up seeing Nikki Giovanni came and spoke. I met Duke Ellington. I just found my father's television show and there he is interviewing Duke Ellington on the day that I played for Duke Ellington. Sarah Vaughn was there, Count Basie was there. George Shirley was even there, my, my, who later became my teacher. He had visited because in the time that I grew up, so many of the black artists came to important HBCUs. And Virginia State is right down 20 minutes below Richmond. So it's a perfect central place for people coming from New York or coming from the South to come to do performances. And they had a beautiful performing hall. So I grew up with a musical environment. Um, I took piano as a child. Um, after initially, no one, no one knew I could sing. And so I took piano lessons uh, when I was 11 um, with um, a teacher for the university. My parents tried to get my piano lessons earlier with that same teacher, Undine Moore, but she said I was too little. And they said, but the little one keeps crawling on the piano and playing what she hears on the radio. My mother was an amateur pianist, so she recognized that I was doing something quite unusual. And she said, my other two older kids don't listen to the radio intently and then go play what they heard. And she said, but the little one does. And so Undine Moore said, yes, but she's too small as a three and four year old. Just let her come to the lessons. So I went to the lessons of my siblings with Dr. Moore, and then I went back and practiced instead of my siblings. And so that's what alarmed them. They said, she keeps doing it. She keeps playing what they're doing. So that's how I started out my life as a pianist. Um, I wanted to be a, a surgeon, a cardiac surgeon. So I went to college to do that um, while I took piano lessons and at UNC, I actually went to my uh, to UNC Chapel Hill uh, for my undergrad. And while there, when it was time to declare my major, they would not allow me to double major in music and biology was what I was trying to do at that time. They didn't have the mechanism set up for a BM in music and a BM a BS in science. They did after I left, but they did not at the time. And so I had to make a choice what I was going to major in. And my father said you know, you're going, you would be a wonderful physician and you have, you have all A's in your, in your program, your science and math. And you've always talked about uh, being a, a cardiac surgeon, but he said, God has given you an amazing gift as a performer and you should change your major to music. So that's how I ended up in music um, coming to Chapel Hill. And then the rest of my story is again, my father to when I, when I was a graduate student at Peabody as a pianist and accompanist, 
Um, because I've realized, although I was a soloist, solo pianist, I loved accompanying. I loved the idea of collaborating rather than being the star. And so I was pursuing that. Um, and someone heard me sing as I was coaching the prep opera. The director heard me sing and she said, my goodness, you sing so beautifully. Can you sing? She said, we, we're short of a part. Now the prep opera at Peabody is totally se separate from the conservatory. So nobody in the conservatory would ever come over to the prep opera. That was for the community and non-singers. Non so I'm over there for my job, just coaching them and, and doing what I was supposed to do. And the director there heard me and said, we're short of a couple of uh, roles. And I wonder, would you mind singing them? And I said, mm, I'm not a singer, but what are they? And she said, we're gonna do act one of La Traviata. We'd like you to sing Violetta. <laughs> I wasn't a singer, so I didn't know I shouldn't be able to do that. Um, and the other one was Letitia in Old Maid and the Thief. And so I actually ended up singing, and they were scenes, They were, but it was the whole act one, and it was a whole large scene from Old Maid and the Thief. And it was, you know, life brings you the people who are supposed to hear you and see you. And as it turned out, the head of the voice department in the conservatory came to the performances. They never did that. But she had another pianist who was working with her who was in another one of the productions. So she happened to be sitting in the audience and she went, wait, you're the little shy girl that plays in my studio. What are you doing? And she listened and she said, you're extraordinary. You need to be a singer. Wow. And so she was that person that steered me toward singing. Otherwise, I would have finished my career, uh, my work, my time there and been a professional accompanist, which is what my plan was. But evidently, there was another plan for my life. And um, the fortuitous thing was I did, uh, she helped me to, um, they, they had to figure out a plan to get me into the conservatory because I was about to graduate. That was the other problem. And so she said, you've got one month to create to come up with a recital on your own and audition for the faculty and then we'll see if we can get you into january i had been an accompanist so i had tons of music in my head i sang in seven languages for the audition because i had people doing russian and spanish i'm sure it was horrendous all of it uh because i didn't speak russian or spanish uh, or and or had studied it but I did the audition, they took me to the conservatory, and so I still was thinking I was going to be a pianist and that this voice degree was just strengthening my ability to be an accompanist. I wasn't thinking I would be a soloist, wow. which is how she presented it to me when I looked at her and said, I don't have a bachelor's in voice or any voice lessons. I'm 24 years old. How can I possibly take get a master's in voice from Peabody Conservatory when I've just walked in the door as a singer. I'm, I'm a freshman. And and she said, no, but you have more skill than you think. And she said, I think that um, she said Gunther Schuler had had um, discovered her. She had been a pianist. She said Gunther Schuler heard her sing and is the person who convinced her to become a singer after she was a pianist. And so she was the right person at the right time to say, I think you should study voice. I think you should get the masters. 
And if you can get yourself on uh, admitted, I'll take you on an overload. Nobody never said anything like, and she had a long waiting list and she said, I will jump you to the head and take you. And that, and that, you know, when someone has that much faith in you, it makes you pause and think about it. So I spoke with my parents um, and my father said, absolutely. If that's what your teacher feels you should do to become a better coach accompanist, because that's what we're all thinking, then of course, go ahead and, and study. And so I did do the degree and she said, I, I did it in one year. She said, I, I really think you should, you know, go on and continue studying, but I'd gotten a, a, a elementary school job. I taught K through 12. And so in a lot of ways, I, it reminds me of Kathy Battle, who is a public school teacher. And I was teaching in Baltimore. And she said, but you should study with my friend and colleague, George Shirley mm -hmm. at the University of Maryland. So I drove an hour down to University of Maryland for one year. And he said, at the end of that year, you know, I think you should do a doctorate in voice and become a singer. <laughs> and I, I, that was the first time someone had actually said, I think you could legitimately become a singer. So I'll stop there, but that's wow. the, I've had a really amazing life that I don't take for granted. Oh my God. That's incredible. <laughs> and first kudos to your dad, Go dad. you know, it's, you, most parents, when their kid says, I want to be a musician, their first instinct is to talk them out of it. Out of it. And then, yes. you know, like my, my parents, when I told them I was going to become a musician, they were more like, well, if that's what you really want to do, we'll support you. Mm -hmm. Rarely have I ever heard of a parent try to talk a child who wanted to be a doctor, doctor. out exactly. of being a doctor and into being a wow. musician. I mean, well, and I should tell you the other part of that is my mother, however, was not a happy camper <laughs> about the idea of me, uh, you know, becoming a musician. And I remember they were both on the phone as we were having this conversation. And in the uh, in their entire 56 year marriage, there were only two times I thought that they might not make it. Well, there were three, but two of them were me. And the first one was that conversation, oh my gosh. which I remember eventually going, I think you all need to talk about this. Bye. <laughs> and I hung up the phone. And then when I called about Peabody, my mother said, you're already, you have two degrees in piano. What in the world are you doing? Because I'm their youngest child. And, you know, the others had settled into their careers and lives. And they were just, she was just flabbergasted that anybody could possibly, um, first of all, be a musician. And she still wasn't happy with my father that just three years before or four <laughs> years before I'd become a musician. But, you know, when they, uh, had an opportunity to travel with me. It was, they, they were fortunate. My dad died in 2004. So he had um, quite a long time to see my career unfold. Mm -hmm. I took them to Europe with me um, mm -hmm. and to watch their pride and joy. Um, and finally, my mother was like, because I did get the doctorate at University of Michigan, she said, well, at least she's got a doctorate. <laughs> <laughs> Some kind of doctor. <laughs> wow. That's so cool. That's that very, amazing. very, that's an amazing story. That's so fun. And it's so interesting. We talk about people getting started late as like teenagers. Right. 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 And you started vo voice. I mean, you'd been, you 25. were a musician, of right. course, but right. 25 
Wow. Right. And I, and I had used my voice yeah. in choirs because yeah. as a pianist, they required you to sing in choirs, of course, church choir. Yeah. So I, I actually used my voice, but to use it and have lessons and know Different. what I'm doing, Different. that was 25. Wow. I mean, very cool. That very, is incredible. Very cool. So what was your first professional performance then as a singer? As a singer, I was going to tell you as a pianist, I played Mozart's Concerto 488 with the Petersburg Symphony Orchestra. As a singer, my first professional one, um, I was in the Munich, in, well, that's not a, a professional gig. <laughs> Whatever you, know. there's too many to count. <laughs> well, it's, it's too far back. It was 32 years ago. So the very first professional performance, well, actually I do remember because uh, what the year I graduated, I was invited to sing uh, at the National Association of Negro Musicians that same summer. So I had just graduated. So I guess that would be considered my first. No, I did Adina professionally while I was still a doctoral student at Michigan. So I guess that counts as my go. first professional um, gig because I did get to see sing lead role in an opera for a small company. Um, wow. Yeah, I guess that's my first one. Although I, I still want to say, no, that's not because I sang with the Toledo <laughs> Symphony, um, Scenes from a Life of a Martyr, I sang in Detroit. So I, I had, as I was a student, I actually was Very beginning cool. to do um, professional gigs, just as I'm watching my own students now, yeah. they've already sung professionally and they're still students with me. Wow. That's really cool. It's so, it, I think it's so interesting now that you're, that was such an interesting, like you, you changed to become a voice major and then music was just such a big part of your life. You're like, I don't really remember. I was just doing it. <laughs> it's just, it was happening. Yeah. It, it was happening and, all along. Yeah. And yeah. now you, you know, you teach and you sing and you were, you like we said, you were here in Canton. Uh, back in 98 is when we, I think, I think it was, is what we said, but uh, you were recently, really recently, like a couple of months ago, month ago, just a month ago, um, really here in Akron singing a work by Julia Perry, which work was it by Julia Perry? We did her Framenti, um, Dalla Sua Lettera, um, so it, which we did the world premiere we found out because mm -hmm. that piece hadn't been premiered. And actually yeah. I was in Canton before that date because I sang with, um, we did a performance in the North Carolina Symphony and um, mm -hmm. Gerhard Zimmerman also had us, we did an opera production of Don Giovanni, I think. Wow. It was either Don Giovanni or Impresario, one of those, but it was a Mozart opera for sure. And so he had us do it in North Carolina, and then we did it again in Canton. So I, that's why Canton invited me to do the program of yeah. African-American music, because they had seen me, I think that fall of 87 would have been mm -hmm. that they saw me do um, that performance. Right. So and, and I'm already getting a glimpse into kind of like the, the answer to my next question, but a lot of your performances, at least recently, and what I've hear, heard mm -hmm. you talk about a lot, is very focused on the music of black composers. Um, and I wonder, 
you know, I was going to say like, why are those perform like, why are those performances important to you? Or like, why did you, why did that become a big part of your career? And I think now hearing how you grew up and the people who you were surrounded with and your dad being a right. historian kind of really yeah. shares that. But I guess your perspective on when did, I guess, performances of music by black composers become something that you were like, I'm actively going to champion this. And this is something that I'm going to make sure I perform and make sure I do. Sure. It, it was my dissertation area. Um, so at Michigan, um, well, let me back up just a, just a hair. I won't do a long as I did its first <laughs> answer. But one of the things that I experienced once I was taking lessons as a child is my teacher from the university would infuse some African-American piano works into my lessons. So I grew up one, from 11 to 18 when I graduated to go to college. Those seven years, I had a teacher that was doing both. And so I assumed, because that's all I knew, I assumed that's what being a musician was about. But then I went to Chapel Hill, never saw work by an African-American in my studies, went to Peabody, again, nothing was there. And, and I knew that that existed. And I would talk to my colleagues about, oh, I played Margaret Bonds, nobody knew who Margaret Bonds was. I said, you know, and I've played um, Nathaniel Dent, nobody knew who Nathaniel Dent was. And so I knew something was wrong with the picture in those years as I was a pianist, but I didn't have any power and ability to really do anything. And I didn't know enough of the repertoire myself to, um, and I wouldn't say demand because I was the kind of person, I was painfully shy, but I also really wanted to learn technically all I needed to know about being a pianist and a singer. And I didn't know until I became a teacher how much that is not taking away from what you uh, are learning by infusing this repertoire. You, you have to work harder to find out what technical demands these pieces have so that you know how to fit them in. That's part of the challenge because people haven't done it. They, don't, they know where a, a Beethoven sonata fits within the curriculum as a pianist, as opposed to a Clementi sonatina, but they don't know where Margaret Bonds' Trouble Water would fit into a piano curriculum because they haven't done it. Mm. Um, and so it was in the back of my mind for a while there, although none of my recitals, I honestly will say, none of them reflected that repertoire. My only, I had to do two recitals as a voice person at Peabody, and literally I was trying to catch up. And so again, I didn't do extra exploration to really do that. When I got to Michigan, one of the important elements about um, Willis Patterson is that he is the person that put the second anthology ever created for African-American music in place. And he had done that in 1977. So when I got there, I saw this anthology of 60 or 70 songs. No, it's not that many, it's about 40 songs, but it's still, it was such a treasure trove and I, I, I was fascinated that it was there. At the same time, there was a person teaching a course in African-American music, which I had not seen in any either Peabody or UNC. And I thought as a doctoral student, we were allowed to take one um, um, ethnomusicology course and that was the one I took. And again, it's part, she was opening the world. She was talking about all black music, not just concert repertoire, but she became the world's biggest Florence Price scholar. Ray Linda Brown was my teacher. And 
it was, and I was there at the early days when she started talking about her research in Florence Price and how she was hoping to write a book. She hadn't written it yet. Um, and we became colleagues and friends after, after I was out of her class and, and she had left the university, we stayed in touch because my research area became Margaret Bonds. So the two of us really became quite well linked in terms of the work that we were gonna do. But having Patterson, having Raylinda Brown there and George Shirley. I actually went to, P to Michigan as George Shirley's first doctoral student because he was at University of Maryland. And this is the last funny part of that story, which is he, while I was studying with him, backing up, while I was studying with him, he said, you should do a doctorate. And I had already studied with him one year for voice. And I said, now who is honestly gonna accept me into a doctoral program when I'm a freshman? in voice. And he said, I think you should apply. So I applied to University of Maryland, which is where he was. My father said, you never applied to one school. And he knew the reputation of the University of Michigan, although he didn't realize his colleague Willis Patterson was there. And he knew Indiana. So I applied to the three schools. And I said, Mr. Shirley, I can't afford to go to these schools. And he said, you might win a fellowship. And I really believe you will. I want a fellowship to everybody. So it became, um, I wasn't interested in Indiana. It was, it, it was fine, but I just wasn't interested. So it was between Michigan and Maryland, but my teacher was in Maryland and I said, I'm gonna go to Maryland. And they offered me more money than Michigan. So I contacted Mr. Shirley on a Friday in April and he said, wait until Monday. When he got back on Monday, <laughs> Michigan had offered him the job that weekend. Had I turned Michigan down, I would have been in Maryland without the teacher that I wanted to study with. Wow. wow. So, you know, again, my dad was very smart man. Wise because <laughs> I, he was because I, as a, a young person, I knew that's the person I wanted and he's at Maryland. Why would I look anywhere else? Um, so that's how I ended up at Michigan. So at that point, then I had George Shirley, who much of this work had been written for. Coleridge Taylor Perkinson was a friend, John Duncan. I mean, a lot of these names that I knew he had the manuscripts of their scores in his office. I became Willis Patterson's assistant. I organized all of his music. The, you know, I'd say a thousand scores that he had at the time, I put into alphabetical order. I made copies for him. I, I did the whole system, but it also meant I got to look at this repertoire. And I said, oh my goodness, there's this much. And that's why I decided to make it my dissertation area, not knowing what it would lead to and thinking my thought was I'll sing traditional opera and everything else because that's what I know. I don't see a market for the music um, that I'm interested in, but I still want to, um, in my own work, begin to infuse it with some of this music. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I saw Matthew's face <laughs> when you talked about the scores. He got so I'm excited. loving this. Yeah. I'm absolutely loving this. Oh my gosh. So, okay, you do a recite you do a recital after recital that's just standard rep. And mm -hmm. assumedly in the early part of your career, you're being hired to sing standard rep. At what point in your career were you able to sort of be like, okay, I would love to sing for your orchestra or your opera company or whatever it is, but I really want to do this rep. And how did you go about 
getting yourself into position to actually perform this rep in a larger stage. Mm. Right. Well, I, I was fortuitous. The story I almost told you about my first professional gig was I sang for the National Association of Negro Musicians. They were founded in 1919 in Chicago, and it's still the country's oldest professional organization of black musicians. So as a student straight out of school, Willis Patterson, who was the president that year, hired me to sing in August. So that means rep people from all over the country who are professors, who are concert presenters, they're all there at the recital that I gave. And as a part of the recital, and Patterson also is the person that introduced me to Sylvia Olden Lee. Sylvia Olden Lee had been the first African-American at the Metropolitan Opera before Marian Anderson. Mm. She was a coach accompanist. She was on their staff. And so I was working with her at the end of my time at Michigan, just because he thought that that would be a cool connection for me to learn about spirituals, particularly that was her strength. But she was the person that coached Kathleen Battle and Jesse Norman for their 1992, I think it is, um, spirituals in Carnegie Hall. So that's who I'm working on, not only my opera arias to prepare me in that direction, but she's also working with me in terms of black music because she had too been that person that had taken on the mantle of working in black music. So she played, um, she didn't play for the concert. My friend Howard Watkins, who's been on the Met staff now for 30 years, was my pianist in this recital in August. Well, out of that, I got hired about 15 places oh my God. all over the United States. So right off the bat, I'm hired by these concert series to do recitals that were half and half. They wanted a portion of African-American music because it was being sponsored by NAM, but they also did want my traditional classical stuff. And that actually showed me a model before I even got to my first teaching job that as I was being hired by places, I should start just saying, hmm, I'm going to either put a group in, I'm going to either put spirituals in, I'm going to put some of this repertoire in it. I don't, there, there are recitals that I did um, from the beginning that there were some people that said, I just want a traditional recital and I did it, but I think I even then would put a group of like Burley songs or Margaret Bond songs because I discovered some pretty cool Margaret Bonds uh, through my coach accompanist, I mean, through my teacher, excuse me, in DC in the early 90s. So I've been singing them since the early 90s, some songs that were unpublished. Wow. And so I put just put them on the recital program, which was my same philosophy as I taught. I just gave them English repertoire that was by African-American composers and I didn't make a big deal of it. I made it a part of their assignment and they figured it out as they did their research. And so it, the students that have studied with me since 1990 were so surprised when they went on to other degree <laughs> programs that that's not how everybody thought. They were like, well, I've already done 25 African-American art songs. Where's everybody else's repertoire, including spirituals with non-African-Americans. But it's the way I approached this music so how did I get the reputation to be able to do it further on? Well, I started recording some of this repertoire um, because I said, you know, if, um, and I wasn't recording, you know, me initiating the four recordings. There was a company, Vidamus, which I do now own, 
but they were already in existence and had started doing the first recordings um, of African-American music, not the only, but they were the, the first sort of CDs starting to really pump out there of African-American concert rep. And I was hired to sing on a couple of the first recordings until um, Vivian Taylor, who founded them, who's not an African-American, surprises a lot of people that this woman in New England decides this is important. And so she champions this music, starts um, hiring people to sing on it, and perform on it because it's a lot of instrumental as well and made a really big splash and so i became their director in the 1990s like 1998 but that's how it was always a part of my work and my life and um so people began to know my name through the recordings they would hear and then i got hired like by the czech national symphony paul freeman was the conductor he wanted me to do african-american music on concerts with orchestras, as well as um, in the Chicago area, I would go and do it with the symphony. And so it's just, it started to grow that people had specific stuff um, like uh, Hale Smith's Four Spirituals. I did those a lot. And I did David Baker's, um, David Baker wrote his um, Spirituals Witness in the orchestral version for me. So that started happening too, that mm -hmm. commissions from orchestras would come to the composers for me specifically. So some of those began to happen. And then a couple of operas, I was really surprised that um, people wrote some operas that I was intended to be um, the, the, the leading character, so. Wow. I mean, so all of these, it's, it's so, I think it's really interesting every time like Matthew and I are having these conversations with people and it, it just, it, this podcast is such a fun way to learn about mm -hmm. That it's a it's this history that has been happening for a long time, but it it feels like almost like insider knowledge. It's not public. I didn't grow up learning any African American music. I grew up in I grew up in Oklahoma, so it's like mm, you know, <laughs> the the teachers I had were wonderful and great. I, they just didn't expose me to African. I think Amani Wins was the first African American because I'm a bassoonist, and so right. that was like the first time I was like really exposed to professional African American musicians. But for you, it's just been your whole life. So with orchestras that have been programming this music for a while, and Canton, who you know something in 1998, but we're trying to be much more intentional about it now. How do you think about? a program of putting together a program I and mean, we've touched on this a little bit but when orchestras are thinking about programming their seasons and choosing music and and what's going to make for something that people are going to enjoy and that um is going to be educational and exciting and thinking about these programs it's hard to program you know it's difficult to come up with these really good programs but how do you think orchestras should be thinking about that in order to keep um, inclusion and to keep just like the widest spread of of good music to, to mm -hmm. get it to audience has how should orchestras be thinking about that I think that, that's a great question and it's a it's a tough question but I think one of the things that orchestras should be thinking about is finding music that is a part of their own community mm -hmm. already I mean and that was the reason that Akron has taken on so much repertoire they've done Julie, quite a bit of yeah Julia, Julia Perry is is has they've right. done a lot of her premieres that's right yeah. they have done a lot of work but that was very smart programming because they're amplifying a black composer but not just because she's black or a woman because that was really important as well that all she was of that stature in that time where we know very few 
um, black women composers who are on the highest level. And she's there. She's one of those going to study with Nadia Boulanger. I mean, that was a big deal. And so not only they're one that's doing that, Charleston is doing that. They're doing Edmund Th um, Thornton Jenkins, who is from that area. So I think that that's one thing is you can begin to build excitement in your communities if you can find a composer that you can rally around and use as an educational time to teach the history. This is what our community had um, and we want to celebrate it. Celebrating significant uh, anniversaries. This is the 110th birthday year of, of Margaret Bonds. She was born in 19, uh, 1913. So this would in March will be her 110th year. Um, that's not a nice round number like 100, but certainly there are so many people that if you don't have someone in your own area you could champion, you can find one and say that I want to bring this history forward. That can be a part of the mission is to bring one person at a time forward in your season. But also when you're thinking and planning the theme of your season, make sure that you stop and look and see, is there an African-American composer that fits within that, that theme? So that you're not having to do what we've sort of done traditionally and have an others concert. Mm -hmm in which Martin Luther King Day or sometime in Black history, we're doing a special concert. If you're really being intentional, that means um, what I tell my students is that this music is a part, it's American music. Why would it not be on your season? I almost challenged it that way, is why would it not? And I do know what you just said, which is people haven't had the education, they haven't had the opportunity to learn it, which is which is really a shame um, that that has been kept from uh, people learning in, in music schools, that they're they're very slowly starting to catch up to the fact that um, this history has been a parallel history all along uh, in terms of American history. Black composers were doing exactly the same kinds of things. When we got to atonality, they're there too. When we're, we're new uh, neoclassicism, they're there too. Um, the themes, as I, I actually teach the African-American art song classes in Michigan, and I talk about the fact that in terms of themes to approach, there of the whole body of African-American art song repertoire, there may be 1% that would make people uncomfortable. And I mean, subjects such as lynching are in, I can only think of three songs by African Americans that actually explicitly talk about that. That's going to be uncomfortable for anybody of any uh, uh, race or ethnicity. But the rest of the music is about love, is about um, nature, is about the things that we are all concerned about. So I'm trying to get people to think about, don't throw the the baby out with the bathwater, look for what makes sense for your communities. Yeah. Um, and engage with one of the things one can also do is finding those leaders in your community to have those conversations of what would be meaningful to you? Would you like a program that has a theme of Martin Luther King's music, but not maybe in January? Yeah. Or if it's on January, can it be on my subscription concert instead of waiting to put it on a concert that is just for 
this program, which means just black people are going to attend it. Yeah. Yeah. Does that help a little oh, bit? Yeah, yeah I know. It's, absolutely. It's, yeah. I think it's, it's something that, I mean, I'm thinking about a lot and, you know, Matthew and I with thinking about programs and future seasons and what are we going to be doing? It's um, finding those. And I think we've come up, we've come up with some fun ideas and cool combinations right. that are like, Oh, this makes sense. This is cool. Indeed. Yeah. And, and something for me, you know, I am, I am always, because we're here in the orchestral world and a lot of orchestral pieces are long pieces. Yeah. And, but for me, making sure that, the piece, if we're going to do a piece by a minority composer, we don't just do a short piece that opens the concert, that we do right. a symphony and we put it in the second half in the right. pride of place that we would put a Beethoven symphony yeah. or anything exactly. else like that. Yeah, exactly. And there are plenty of those oh, yeah. works that can stand their own. There are plenty of short works oh, as yeah. well. Um, and by the way, Rachel, uh, it reminded me, I went to Michigan with two African-American barit uh, a bassoonists oh. <laughs> at the time that I was there. And they both have concentrated on African-American bassoon repertoire. Oh, oh my gosh. I, I gotta, you got to get me their content. I need, I need to know more. I will. I, I'm I will. lacking in that area, unfortunately. No, no, no. <laughs> I, it's, just, it's just really it's really cool that you said that. That's and so Velvet fun. Brown, I think, has done a CD. She's yeah. a bassoonist that's done a, a CD on African-American. But, but Matthew, to your point, you're absolutely right. That's what I've also encouraged is make it that highlight. We had in 1932, Florence Price, William Dawson, and William Grant still began the symphonic tradition for African-Americans. So there are three powerful symphonies just in those three. But beyond that, Price has done many more symphonies and so have a lot of other composers. Um, so I think that there's so much to choose from to to make a statement piece mm -hmm. with the symphony and and that would make a statement to your um, cons your your audience, if they are beginning to see that people of all ethnicities can be represented in that piece. And I, I'm not saying just African-Americans. Right. I really do believe that symphonies should begin to explore what does your community look like? Right, right. And can you speak to them in multiple ways? Maybe you do do a short or overture one one month. Maybe another month you have a full symphony. Yeah, exactly. But it shouldn't just appear. Um, music of other composers to me doesn't belong in a a once in a year right. program yeah. any more than as I told you with my father in Black History Month. I got to hear them talk about the point of Black History Month was not to pick the shortest month. It was to honor Abraham Lincoln's birthday was that month and Tom uh, Frederick Douglass. Mm. So that's why February was picked. But the intent was taking from Black History Week to Black History Month is that people would then begin to look at this um, history throughout the year. Mm -hmm. It Definitely. was just that starting point. It wasn't intended to be here we are. This is all we need. It was more of look, we can talk about this for a month. Now, maybe two months, three months, four months, we can infuse it. So yeah. when did it go from week to month? So my father in the 70s. 70s. Okay. okay. Like that's 72. I can't remember the exact year, like 72, 73, right. somewhere okay. around. Okay. Yeah, that's really, I think it's interesting of, um, you know, the, the history month, you know, women's history month, black history month, Asian American history month, like uh, these months of, of, of great, like, Oh, we like, here's all the stuff of, when are we going to get to the point where we're just celebrating 
all like everyone's right. his, we're, we're celebrating right. and we're lifting people up. And I, I, I think it's so cool that <laughs> your father was one of the people that that's just, that's so cool to me. I didn't know that. I didn't know that it started as a week and then it became a month. Right. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Oh yeah. The Carter, the Carter G. Woodson society started it as a week. Carter G. Woodson decided that, and that was in, I don't want to say I'm the wrong year, but it, it seemed like thirties or forties. And that the whole point was that nobody was, in fact, it was Negro Achievement Month, I think it was called, but it was so that they could just highlight because there was so much non, there was so much difficulty and strife in the country in terms of African-Americans that he said, we need to have something that amplifies. And it was a historical society anyway. And so my father became the president uh, for a couple of terms and that's how that was when he was uh, the president that they decided to turn it from a week into a month because they felt that, um, and I agree with you, I hope that we will get beyond the point where we have to amplify in a specific month because we're just doing it all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, don't know when that's gonna be, but it'll be cool. Yeah. Yeah. I don't don't think it's gonna be in our lifetime, but I'm hoping (laughs) the same thing for this repertoire. I'm hoping, that no longer will people have to think about it as a choice when they're assigning repertoire. And even as I've created anthologies that say African and African diaspora repertoire, I'm hoping they will just put it right beside their other anthologies and look at both as they're preparing. But eventually I've started working with one of the major publishers. I want them to put this in their major publications. And I'm, I'm working on them. Okay, cool. (laughs) So on a similar note, uh, leading right off from this, tell us a bit about the African Diaspora Music Project. Yes, that is uh, one of uh, two big projects that, well, I'm involved in a couple of big projects, Mm -hmm. but um, that's one of my pet projects. Um, And uh, I will have to back up a little bit again to say, that I founded the co-founded the George Shirley Vocal Competition with George Shirley uh, 14 years ago, and the intent was that he had he had been a judge for an Italian American uh, song competition, and he said, "I wonder why we can't do that for African American music." And the the participants weren't Italian Americans in the the Italian song uh, competition. So he came to me um, because, you know, as I don't know why me, except for, uh, and he said it to me a couple of times um, as a dream uh, that he wanted to see come to fruition. And the last time I said, okay, Mr. Shirley, I know nothing about starting a competition, but I'll start it. (laughs) And then I heard myself say that and I said, what did I just do? So I started by, because I was living in North Carolina, so I said he wanted a high school competition in Detroit for Detroit students. A, I had no connection to Detroit schools, um, and I'm a college professor running the music program at Chapel Hill. I didn't have time to do this, but I made the time. I figured it out. I started by partnering with an organization I did know that dealt with high school students. I put my own $1,000 in there and said, we're going to get this started. After that first year, and I saw how inspired the kids were, um, I began to really commit to doing this and raising the money to make this happen. Um, And so then I moved it to a college competition and things like that. And we now give away more than $35,000 at the University of Michigan. 
But the point was what I began to see year after year, they were using that same one anthology I told you about from Willis Patterson and no new music was coming up. And I said, they don't know how to find the music because they can't see the music. How do I help them with the music? Um, by that point in my life, I'd collected more than 4,000 original scores in my home of African-Americans. And the way we set up the competition, by the way, is for students of all ethnicities, which um, we both insisted upon because I said, you know, I'm not sure that we can get to the teachers who are the ones that are, of course, assigning the repertoire. But if we can get to the next generation, because I said my generation is probably lost. Um, that was initially my attitude, but I said, if we can get to the students, excite them about the repertoire, then we might have a chance in reverse to get them to go to their teachers and say, I want to sing this. Yeah. And especially if we're monetizing their learning, I hate the idea of monetizing learning, but I also knew it would be effective. And so that's what we did. But I said, now I've got to help them. They don't have any way to find it because a lot of this music um well if you don't know who you're looking for you don't know how to find it and so that's what precipitated my spending years putting together a database and as i looked around um at the time i started the work on the database was actually more like 20 years ago as i was just cataloging my own music i had this list in excel and i said how do you turn this into a database that's usable and as I looked at other databases, they weren't doing what I wanted to see. I wanted a person to be able to come to the site, have no knowledge and start typing what you did know. And that is maybe I'm a soprano and then everything that's for a soprano populates. I said, that's one way to get them at least to see names and pieces and then they can start researching. Yeah. And so that's what we did. We had to custom build the site. We released the voice one in 2019 um, and then I met jo uh, James Blatchley. Mm -hmm. He came on board and contacted yep. me because the plan was always I was going to start with voice and expand to the other areas, but there was no urgency for me to expand to the other areas. I, I just felt I needed a good grasp on these 4,000 pieces and making this the most usable site. But then James came into my life. Um, and as James and I began talking about this, I realized we were going to need to jump to orchestral at the same time. Yeah. And that's how ADMP that has been doing so much work with orchestras yeah. came to fruition. And it's really been um, a wonderful opportunity. I've loved partnering with orchestras. I was in Minnesota in October cool. um, hosting their concert, but also working with them on their repertoire. And it's just been really powerful for me to sit there in an audience and watch what the 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 different orchestras are able to do or having conversations as we are now yeah. about how they're thinking and how to put this to together so that it's helpful for the community but helpful for the music as well and so that's where the the competition drove the database uh into existence and then publishing was driven into existence when I got to the point of, oh, these are all in manuscript. Well, that's not helpful. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> we're doing that now. And we're looking at some um, publishing for orchestral repertoire as well now. Yeah. So is the orchestral version available now and usable? Oh, yes. Yes, yes, it yes. is. I'm sorry. We released that in 2020. 
21, I think. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. It lagged behind by about a year or two because we had to figure out how to integrate the two sites because that's yeah. what you need is different than what a singer needs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. See, we, I, when I program, I'm, of course, searching what's the instrumentation, like right. how big of an orchestra do we need so I can say, okay, this would fit in with this program, but it would be too big for, for this, this other one. program. I'm constantly yeah. thinking about all that stuff. So yeah, Absolutely. and a singer just wanting to do an art song is yeah. not going to have any of those worries. No, no, <laughs> yeah. no. And we have things like poets, and we're we're looking at that yeah. in terms of programming by themes yeah. and program. But that's why James was a perfect yeah. initial collaborator. Um, Kellen Gray's now with us, and and Christopher Wilkins. So there's we have a team oh. that actually includes a lot of conductors yeah. who are helping us to get it right. Um, because I wanted to make sure, but now we've added some chamber musician, Ash Gordon with Castle of Our Skins oh, is cool. doing the chamber part. We have someone doing youth orchestras. Yes. So we're, we're expanding to make sure that we really are covering mm -hmm. the, the needs in that area. I have a person that has done instrumental rep, ch um, cello, uh, Timothy Holly, who had been keeping the database and working with most of the African-American composers of this era he's got their rep so it's now all incorporated we're doing piano rep so we're we're beginning our team keeps expanding as we um i insisted that we bring on the expertise i did play flute violin and, and clarinet in my life but i don't consider myself an instrumental or orchestral um uh expert so yeah. i wanted to make sure I'm smart enough to know, bring on the experts mm, right. to help yeah. with that. Yeah. So, and I love yeah. that there's a youth symphony oh, yeah. component because at the Canton Youth Symphonies, we're trying to do as many, every concert, uh, certainly of the advanced orchestra, the intermediate group, yeah. they, they, that's a little bit more difficult. But certainly of our advanced orchestra, my goal is that every concert will have a piece by a woman and or a person of color. Yeah. And that so having fun. that database, that pieces that we know would work for, yeah. with the youth for orchestra. Young yes. Yeah, that's so, and you bring up the, the, the interesting problem with a manuscript versus it being published and, and being available. And I, um, uh, Christopher Wilkins um, at Akron did a beautiful talk about it. Um, uh, just a month ago that I went to and a lot of Julia Perry's stuff, that was the issue. And also it was when she died, her estate was not, bequeathed correctly and her yeah. and they didn't know who owned the th rights to anything so trying to get the rights to play the music we, who do we even talk to to get this and i think they just made headway like lawyers like, like last like two three weeks ago it's or something weeks ago. Yeah. right we're we're in the process of working on that right now. Exactly. I'm in the mix of that. Yeah, cool. I figured you. I was like, I figure Louise is in the mix of this. But like that type, those those issues that you don't think about, um, you're like, oh, music is just available because Beethoven, you can just find it, right? But the work hasn't been, and this has been brought up on the podcast a couple of times of when it became you know popular again to be playing music by minority composers some of the bigger publishers kind of just churned stuff out that was mm -hmm. not the greatest quality and you know i was talking with sarah da sarah davis buchner who's a pianist and she was playing something by florence price and was just horrendous she was what is wrong with who let this get po who who was the editor of this but like just um, so it's really cool and that you're doing that. Rachel that Barton Pine Rachel was Barton saying Pine the, said same the same thing, thing yeah. about the yeah. additions being She's like, what is this horrible? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it is a concern because 
the the whole thing with African Americans being published, that's been a problem from the, the, the beginning. There was that whole period of exclusion intentionally right. of marginalized um, composers having access to publishing. So in the first place, many of their scores are in manuscript for that reason, because they just could not get any mainstream publisher to publish them. So they either self-published or they remained unpublished. But then even as you said, there the since 2020, now there's been a flood right. of, of work. And instead of coming to people who have invested time and interest in these scores, they're just doing it themselves or doing these reductions or doing whatever. Um, and you, as you said, they're making, they're trying to churn it out to make money instead of really investing in the quality of the music. Um, and, and that's a shame. Yeah. Yeah. That's very much a shame. And I, that kind of leads into a, a, a question that could open a big can of worms. So feel free to not answer it as full as you want to, but you know, the state of research in academia, when it comes to music history is something I'm not super familiar with. I'm not in that world. I feel like the music history and ethnomusicology world, the musicology world is, is we've talked to some musicologists on this podcast, but it, it's more of a closed off society, I feel like. And I wonder what the, your perspective on the state of academia is on this topic of, of playing this right. music. And you've been in places where your students are used to it. This is what they get. This is what it's part of their pedagogy. It's what they're getting. But when you're looking at kind of like the world of academia that isn't you, how do you think it, it's doing in this realm? Well, you know, it's the same issue we're having in with all of us uh, uh, in terms of music, in, in terms of the academy. Um, the teachers were not trained in it. Mm. So therefore, the teachers don't teach the next generation about the same thing. Yeah. So what I am seeing is some of my colleagues, and I'm saying not only the music historians, but the music theorists, some are making concerted efforts to begin to infuse some African-American composers into their teaching. Because, you know, as I've said to so many times, I said, if you're teaching about Mozart or you want to teach about classicism, you also have Chevalier de Saint-Georges. And I said, why can't you have the homework assignment be a string quartet? of St. George, do an analysis of that. It doesn't always have to be Mozart we talk about, Mozart we do the examples, Mozart we play, and you exclude the rest of the world. So it's not asking you to lose anything, it's asking you to broaden the scope. So that's a problem across the board. The world of musicology has also its own issues of there are some that believe in musicology um, studying certain subjects, and they're saying that ethnomusicology is the one that should be left to areas such as, um, uh, you know, maybe less mainstream in their mind, whatever you want to call less oh. mainstream issues going oh. that way. So they even within themselves, there's musicology with a large M, there's musicology with a smaller M. And one means musicology and ethnomusicology, and the other one means just musicology. And so those worlds are in flux themselves at this point. So I can't say that um, the number of people coming out of the academy that are studying this repertoire or interested, there, there are a lot of students sometimes that go in very much interested, but they don't necessarily get into the schools to get their uh, doctoral degrees. They're not admitted because they're on a subject that they don't have a person who might want to 
um, mentor them and be their advisor. So until we make a couple of more shifts, as in hiring people who are interested in these fields to then be the advisors right. to work with people who want to do this, we're keeping it's it's easy to keep things closed off as it has been and to continue in the traditions we've always been in. Mm. Um, so there are also an interesting new phenomenon I noticed when I was chair at, at UNC was I found a lot of musicologists who were studying black music, not in the music area. They weren't hired on music faculties. They were in history. They were in oh. Africana studies. They were even in, um, we have one that does music here who's in German. Um, and so they sometimes, huh. because her area is, it's yeah. German and she does African-American. So it's a, it makes sense as an appointment, but also it means that She's not in our department Building. per se. Yeah. So people doing a dissertation wouldn't be with us in music. So there, that is, and that's pretty common on campuses wow. that you will have people with PhDs in musicology or ethnomusicology outside of the music area, which means those students don't have access to them in the same way. So interesting. it's a little bit of othering them because they're not, right with you and the depends on how well a school does in terms of making them available and um connecting to them yeah um and making available to their students their expertise because otherwise you know how do we get more scholars in the field if they can't get the training in the the schools and michigan is one of the biggest in the country yeah it's the number wow. one public institution wow I also think, you know, that the fact that if, if somebody wants to study this music from a musical perspective, really yeah. wants to look at maybe from a theoretical perspective, you need a music per yeah. person to do that, not yeah, right. a historian. A historian might know about right. the context about which yeah. the music is written, but they're not necessarily going to be able to look at the the chords and the orchestration right. and be able to speak on the same level about that, which absolutely, absolutely. And that's why I'm saying it's, it's an interesting phenomenon that there are many of them, which the, the reason I found that was I was curious where I was meeting people across campus when I was a chair at UNC who were saying they were doing gospel music and they did, you know, this area of music. And I said, we don't, I didn't know that you were there and I want to cross list your courses so that my students can at least have access to somebody historically mm. who is teaching this area. It doesn't solve exactly what you said, but then I also, that's how I found there were some musicologists and there was one in geography. There's one in Africana studies. I was finding these PhDs who are the right degree mm. with the right understanding, but they were not in the music department. Wow. So, okay. Wow. That yeah. both situations exist. Um, I mean, it just means the students have to either know that and figure that out ahead of time, or it, it, it just makes a slightly odd working relationship because yeah. those people don't always have time for a music student who wants to do a dissertation. Right. Right. They have their own responsibility. <laughs> Where I'm doing my own right. stuff, guys. Yeah. Right. So that's one of those pieces I think we in the academy still have to solve. Yeah to make this so that we have a nice pipeline mm. of people who are trying to study black music, getting the training they need, um, working with the people they need, and then getting the jobs 
that's how we're going to change what is being taught in yeah. other universities without those people. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of as we're wrapping up with mm -hmm. today, I, you know, one question I've asked a couple people now on the podcast, and I think you're uniquely qualified um, to help with this answer is a lot of time, like us right now, we mm -hmm. often are having guests, um, our minority guests, and we're asking them, hey, can you tell us all about the problems that exist and what can we do better? Um, and, you know, we've learned a lot and everyone who's been on the podcast has been so gracious and we've, I mean, so much, so many great conversations, so much learning, but I think, you know, us as podcast, uh, you know, here listening to you and other people when they're trying to engage in this, how do we go about asking these questions and being curious and trying to produce this change without putting burdens and, and, and putting for like, Hey, you, you must know about this topic. So can you share us and tell us how to make this better? How do we do that in a way that's respectful make sure that we're always being conscious to not abuse minority people for their knowledge and maybe, you know, traumatic history or something that they've gone through. Yeah. Like, Hey, you must know you're black. So you must know how to tell me how to fix this problem. You know, right. how do we, how do we make sure we're continuing to have these conversations, but doing it respectfully? Well, I think that one of the things I, I did learn from my parents is creating genuine relationships means that you don't always go to people with those difficult things, but that you all are genuinely checking in on them. Yeah. or talking to them, or you're having other conversations. That's when it feels less burdensome when someone is having a conversation with you about, you know, we're doing this great concert. What do you think about this? That's a different kind of conversation than we're trying to program this and we have these really difficult questions. So I would say making sure that your conversation is not always hammering the same issue, because that is something people get very tired of that. Imagine the number of conversations that I've had this year and the last, I don't know, 32 years um, on this subject. Mm -hmm. And sometimes a person is, as with you, I met you at a, a conference and had a conversation first. Yeah. So this is easier for me to say yes to. Mm -hmm. But the the number of times that there's just, I just want to talk to you about this one issue. Mm. Fix the issue. That's, and that, and that does happen, that we need you to fix the issue. That's it. That's, that's not going to engender the best response or the long-term response yeah. from um, from people. So you're right that 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 coming at people one time, but if you've had a relationship, if you as a Canton Symphony are really invested in your community, then it's not that you have the one black friend, but you have a community because that's the other thing is spreading it out between people. So you don't always, you, yes, it has to be people you trust, but that you're not always saying, I can only ask this one person. Mm -hmm. If it comes down to it, it is also having that conversation and saying, look, I need a trusted advisor when I'm really making these hard decisions. Do you mind being that trusted advisor sounding board for us to do this? We wanna get this right. Yeah. And figuring out language that is, um, that will make them feel like you're making a real investment in what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, because I remember being on committees back when I was a young uh, teacher, even where they wanted me to be on the minority initiative committees, <laughs> things like that, the, the diversity committees. And 
I kind of looked at them and I said, why? And they said, well, because you're a black person. You're the only one on the faculty. And I said, but why was that? Why would I need to be on it? I'm not the one with the issue. <laughs> so that's, that's, and that is how it feels. It, yeah. be, it begins to feel every minority committee, they wanted the one black person, which was me, to be on the committee. And I began to push back and say, this isn't my issue though. You're the one having the issue. So it's figuring out how to come to it and say, you know what, I know I have the issue, but can I talk to you about this? Because I'm the one with the issue. That's helpful as well, rather than I'm trying to solve an issue and I need you because you're the one person that can be the expert. Yeah. It's like I told my class yesterday, I said the whole issue with African-American art song was my uh, was white people were looking at black people as the experts and black people were looking at back and saying but wait a minute i don't know anything about this either <laughs> and i said why are why are we assumed to be the expert because we are skin color and i said so therefore what did that do to the music it fell through the cracks because neither side or and and stu and and students of other ethnicities in between nobody knew how to approach this so everybody just dropped it and that's what you don't want to have happen you don't want it to just drop because there's not a good way to do this any conversation no matter how hard can be had it's how we approach it yeah wow <laughs> so as we wrap up today sure. we're going to ask you the question that we ask all of our podcast guests at oh the end of each episode. And it's a very open-ended, free question. So take it however you wish. Okay. How do we orchestrate change? <laughs> well, I think we orchestrate change through genuine conversation is the first step for me. Um, bringing new people to the table of the conversation um, because it's it's one thing to have continuous conversations with those that already believe that we should have change. And it's quite something else to have conversations with people who don't think we need to have change mm. and helping them to, to helping to bring them along to understand why we need change and what this all means. I remember I was a uh, president of the North Carolina symphonies, um, board in my county um, and the North Carolina symphony functions a little different than some that they traveled to all the, the areas, but you had to have a board for each of those areas they were going to travel to. And so I was, and, and what they got is the children's concert came out of that. And I remember I was with one of my board members and we were trying to approach millionaire, billionaire, one of those kind of people um, for some funding and and support really of what we were trying to do so we could get the kids to get these concerts. And he said, um, I don't like classical music. And I said, oh, I said, do you like art? And he said, mm -mm, I'm not interested in anything that has to do with the arts. And I said, okay. And I said, I want you to visualize your home. And he said, okay. And I said, I want you to take this, the furniture away. He said, why? I said, just, just do it in your mind, take the furniture away. Take those draperies your wife put in, take that out, take the rugs out, take the statues, take, and I just kept naming things. And I said, what do you have left? And he said, well, I have lumber. I said, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you, take the lumber out. <laughs> he said, I don't have anything. 
And I said, because all of those pieces were made by people who created the arts. That's a different types of art. But I said, music is one of these arts. And I said, do you listen to the radio? And he said, oh yeah, I love listening to, yep, nope, that's gone. CD player's gone. <laughs> and he said, what? And he, I saw him, he looked at me intently for a while, but then he started to smile and he said, I get it. I get what you're saying about the arts. He said, now I'm not, he, 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 he said, I'm not gonna be necessarily the biggest classical music um, supporter, but I get what you're saying about the importance of the arts. They are important. He said, and I didn't realize I was a consumer of the arts every day. That's simplistic, but it's bringing, you know, I could have just not gone to him. We all knew he didn't support the arts. He supported sports and um, things like that, which is fine too. But it, it's finding a way to have conversations and language that brings people along. Yeah. Finding ways to get our educational system to begin to respect all perspectives and adding that into it. Um, and that's a big ask, trying to get our lawmakers to get on the same page <laughs> and begin to respond to the people. I don't care what your party is, but please do something mm -hmm. for all of us. Change can't happen if we are fighting. Yeah. And so we need to somehow get bring people along. Well, Dr. Toppin, thank you so much for chatting with us today. It was so nice to see you again. I hope I can see you again soon. Um, and I, I'm, I'll probably keep emailing you for updates on that, the, you know, what's going on. And I'm just, yeah. thank you so much for all the work you've done that, to make it just straight up easier to find music. I mean, it sounds like not that big of a deal, but it's a huge deal that that exists. <laughs> and I'm just... Yeah. We're so grateful. It makes our lives easier. So thank you so yeah. much also for chatting with us today. It's been, it's been a really Absolutely. good time. Oh, and just for you know, we added curated lists oh. to the, the website now. So there's a whole section that's just curated lists. We listened at the conference and there are 10 conductors who have created curated lists. Oh, great. Oh my gosh, wow. that's so cool. That's so exciting. Yeah. Okay, we're, yeah. we're, I'll take make sure to take a look at that. Take a look. The, yeah. Our website looks completely different because we just redid it. Wow, okay, cool. Cool, cool, cool. Bye. <laughs> Thank you all. Louise Toppin, coloratura soprano and professor of voice at the University of Michigan. Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer is Nathan Maslick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.